This is The Camp with Zach Heilprin and the Athletics' Jesse Temple. Yes, welcome into The Camp. I'm Zach Heilprin. That is the Athletics' Jesse Temple. We are getting closer to game day. Badgers going to take on Buffalo on Saturday. 2.30 kick on FS1. It's going to be a warm one. So dress appropriately, Jesse. No, we don't have to. There's going to be air conditioning in the press box. Fantastic. For the first time ever, they uh, renovated the press box. No one else cares about that, so we're not going to talk about it. Uh, but we will get to plenty of stuff. Get into the depth chart that was released on Monday. Going to hear a little bit from Braylon Allen, and then we'll talk a little bit about Tanner Mordecai as well. Before we do any of that, I want to congratulate Andrew R. He is the winner of the tickets to the Buffalo game. He correctly answered Ron Dane. The way I did it was we got about I got 100 answers. I put 100, 1 to 100 in a random number generator and came out with a number and then counted down, and Andrew just happened to be the number that I counted down to. So congratulations to him. He'll get the tickets. We may do it later on in the season as well. We'll see if uh, that comes to pass or not, but certainly appreciate everyone jumping in and uh, giving us our, their answers and giving us the right answer. Ron Dane, obviously the right answer. There are a few people that didn't give the right answer, and um, you know who you are. So we do appreciate that. Also, coming up on Thursday, we are going to be at Monks in Sun Prairie for the first episode of Temple and Heilprint. It's going to be live from 6 to 7. Come out and see us. Got a lot of great food, a lot of great drinks, ton of TVs. Graham Mertz is going to be playing that night, 7 o'clock. They play Utah. So come out and watch the game a little bit. Um, if you can't get out there, you can listen on Zone Madison. You can also... Catch it on the podcast version that will be posted sometime on Friday. All right, Jesse, the transfer, or to say the two deep was littered with transfers. The first one that was put out on Monday, there were 15 scholarship transfers that came into Wisconsin. 10 of them were listed in the two deep and that, uh, and five of them were starters. Six, if you count Nathaniel Vakos. But it was littered with it. And I think they put a lot of effort into going to the transfer portal and finding guys that could potentially help them right away. And from the jump, it looks like they did. It says a lot about this staff and the desire that they had to upgrade at specific positions that they went out and got those players and then they were good enough to earn a spot in the two deep. And I think two key positions that show you where the staff wanted to upgrade clearly quarterback and wide receiver. We haven't necessarily seen the top end talent at those positions over the years at Wisconsin, they come and go and uh, certain positions, but you look at the two deep at quarterback, both those guys are transfers, Tanner Mordecai, the sixth year one season plug and play guy who's expected to have a, a really good year. And then Braden Locke, who appears to be the quarterback of the future, at least based on what we saw in spring practice and preseason. And at wide receiver, three of the wide receivers listed in that two deep are transfers. Bryson Green from Oklahoma State, CJ Williams from USC, and Will Pauling from Cincinnati. The most interesting thing to me about the wide receiver grouping is that uh, they have seven in the two deep, actually, because Will Pauling uh, is the starter in the slot but they've got Skylar Bell and Vinny Anthony both listed as or as backups. It says an awful lot about how far Anthony came. Uh, but yes, the, the transfers were necessary and we're seeing why with this week one, two deep. Yeah. The other ones that are listed with the starting group, Joe Huber at left guard and Jason Matry as the nickelback. And then you can go into the, the twos 
at least on uh, on the defensive side. And you get Darian Varner as well and Jeff Petrowski at, at outside linebacker. So it is a group. It's a very deep group of transfers, and they all, not all of them, obviously, are going to make an impact. But a healthy majority of them are going to make an impact at Wisconsin. That starts with Tanner Mordecai, who will be the fifth, I believe, fifth transfer quarterback to start at Wisconsin since 2008 or start a season opener since 2008. Can you name the other four, Jesse? This is good. Uh, Russell Wilson in 2011. Tell me he's the first. He's not. Okay. Jeez. Uh, That's my first season on the beat. So Tolzien was 2010. Yeah. Uh, he was also 2009. So. so it's the 2008 quarterback that yep. escapes me. So I apologize to all the lifer badgers out there. <laughs> who's who's the first transfer? Alan Average. Okay. Predates me. Yeah. I can go from there. He was a lefty. <laughs> How'd that work out? Not great. Okay. 2008. It's bag. 2008 was a tough one. It was, yeah, Alan Average was supposed to be the next great thing. He was not. Then Dustin Shear. And then Scott Tolzien got in for a little bit and, the next year when Scott Tolzien got the start, I was like, oh, my God, really? That's what they got? Kurt Phillips couldn't couldn't jump him? Scott Tolzien turned out to be pretty darn good uh, for Wisconsin. But, yeah, yeah. so uh, those – so Allen Average and then Russell Wilson. Danny O'Brien in 2012 did not work out so well for him. I guess he had his moment in the sun against Northern Iowa in his debut. Uh, that was a closer game than, than it should have been, but yes. Yes, but he was good. Uh, Tanner McAvoy. Yep. That's it. Uh, that is uh, an interesting mixed bag of quarterbacks. That's that's four. Yeah, I mean, you look at what they did. Obviously, Russell Wilson was the best quarterback in school history. Allen Average didn't work out. And obviously, uh, Danny O'Brien did not work out. Tanner McAvoy did work out, just not at quarterback. But, yeah. So, the, but he's the first one, obviously, since 2014. They've they've found a little stability in terms of starting quarterbacks and under Paul Christ and sticking with guys and not necessarily bringing in transfer quarterbacks from other places. He stuck with the guys that he got from high school, and that kind of transitions here into what Luke Fickle was asked. Because when you look at what they did on the depth chart, transfer wise, or I should say, transfer wise on the depth chart, a lot of really important players for this year, but. Luke Fickle has said from this jump that they are not going to build their team through the transfer portal. They are going to build it through the high school ranks. And I don't necessarily think that's changed, but because of the success that they had in the transfer portal, and now we'll see what happens on the field, but it looks like they, they hit it pretty well. Could that change? Could that be a little bit different going forward? Maybe he feels better about taking kids out of the transfer portal, but that's not necessarily the case. And he was asked about this during his weekly Monday presser and said that the goal would be to have 85 to 90% of your roster as high school players so you can recruit and develop. And when I was talking to Luke this summer about recruiting, he said that he wants to have 18 to 22 high school players in each recruiting class. I do think, though, and he's smart enough to realize that it's going to be situational and it's going to depend on what the program needs each year because... Wisconsin needed quarterbacks and wide receivers. This was obviously a unique situation because you you got people leaving. You want to bring in your own people. You have a totally different system. But if there is a hole or a need, you go find someone in the transfer portal. And the way this opportunity sets up is it also will be impacted by what you get in high school recruiting. You've got the early signing period where you get your guys in December and then you reassess what your needs are. You can pursue some other people in recruiting out of high school 
up to February. We saw that happen with a Jamel Howard, which was a massive win on the defensive line for Wisconsin and defensive line coach Greg Scruggs. But at the same time, if you see that there are some positions of need that you didn't get in high school, that's where those transfers can come in. One thing I do think that can be beneficial for Wisconsin moving forward is, and we see this a lot, the guys that typically end up leaving are guys who are not very happy with their situation, with their playing time. Now, it's not always that way, but in a lot of cases, I think we've seen that is what happens. So if you can lose those kinds of guys, but bring in extremely talented transfers that are going to compete and play immediately, then you're consistently upgrading your roster. I actually mentioned, uh, forgot to mention Nizier Forkery and also in the two deep as well. Uh, when I was talking about the, the two deep on defense. Yes. I also think that he has said that he wants guys that are going to be, he's going to be able to have them for two, not two, three, four, five years. And that doesn't necessarily totally knock transfers out, right? Yeah. We we know that the only six-year transfers that they have right now, guys that only have one year left, are Tanner Mordecai and Jason Matry. Everyone else has at least two years and potentially more. I mean, guys like Will Pauling, guys like C.J. Williams, uh, guys like Brayden Locke, like guys that have and Nick Evers, all these guys that have multiple years left that – while they are not necessarily kids out of high school, they are people that are they're going to have for multiple years within the program. I think that's a good point too, because just because you get a transfer doesn't mean that guy can't be a huge part of building your culture and moving it forward. Um, other people you didn't mention, Nathaniel Vakos is only a sophomore. He had one great year at Ohio, but he's got three years left. Atticus Bertram's, while not technically a transfer because he didn't officially enroll at USC, is a guy who came into the program from outside, and he's a freshman. And so I think there's a good opportunity for these guys to help become the core of the program in the early years of the Luke Fickle era. You mentioned Will Pauling, Quincy Burroughs, another young guy who isn't in the too deep, but I think down the road will be a, has an opportunity to be a very effective player in this offense. There are a number of these transfers that uh, I think when you look back, we'll say they were a big part of starting this thing off with Luke Fickle. Yeah, I would agree. Getting into a little bit more of the depth chart, biggest surprise that yeah. potentially is on there. I don't, I don't think there were any huge surprises, but there maybe were a few slight surprises. The two that come to mind are first off at wide receiver, Bryson Green is listed as the starter at his position ahead of C.J. Williams. Now, you can debate the uh, the level of surprise here because the last open scrimmage that was held or, or the open practice was a scrimmage situation, and Bryson began to take away some of those reps from C.J. and earn more of the first-team reps. But we knew that both those guys were going to play a lot, and that's still going to be the case. I don't know what the distribution of snaps is going to be. There were instances where we saw what looked like a hockey line where you've got your three in, three out, and there was no drop-off, and that's really what this staff wants because they've wanted six wide receivers all along. But just the fact that it was there in print to see that Bryson Green had elevated was something that caught your eye. And the other thing is it's more injury related, but Isaiah Mullins is not listed in the two deep here. And there are some other injuries as well. Um, but just somebody that I thought would be in the two deep didn't really know the severity of the injury. Luke Fickle, you asked him about it and, and said that Mullins had a scope. And so he'll be out for a handful of weeks. It remains to be seen when he'd come back. But as a result of him not being in there, your two backup defensive ends are Cade McDonald, 
And Darian Varner, who was the Temple transfer that I mentioned in the previous episode, is the guy that I think we hadn't been talking about enough that could have a big impact. So those were two notable ones to me. Yeah, I think the Bryson Green one is is interesting because we saw him not we didn't get to see him in the spring. We everyone knew how big of a pickup that was going to be, but I was always like, well, where he where is he going to fit in? Like CJ Williams is taking off, and and Chim Dike, he's not going to jump Chim right? So like, where does he fit in? And then we got to see him in fall camp and we understood why they wanted him so badly. He is a playmaker and he is a guy that not, this is not a knock on CJ Williams at all. I thought CJ had a great spring and then he was able to come into fall camp and he made some plays, but he also was sharing the field with Chimre DK and Will Pauling a lot. And I didn't think the targets were coming his way nearly as much as they were in the spring. Again, he made some plays, but Bryson green, because of, maybe where he was on the depth chart was getting to play with the twos a lot. And a lot of passes were coming his way. And it's not to say that they didn't start continue to come his way when he came up with the ones in that Saturday scrimmage that we got to see, but it's a little bit different. He was allowed to make a ton of plays and he made them. And uh, you know, maybe if he was around the spring, he would have been the starter throughout. I don't know that, but he made a ton of plays and he deserved based on what we saw to be one of the top guys. But as you said, it's going to be a rotating. They're going to be rotating guys a lot, but in the key stretches, I think Bryson Green's going to be out there because I think they trust him. And we, when we talked to Braden Locke and, you know, 50, 50 balls, not a 50, 50 ball when you throw it up to him. And when it's single coverage, he's open. Like those are types of things you say about guys that you trust and are going to throw the ball to a lot. And Bryson Green, I think is going to get the ball a ton. I think Bryson has an opportunity to lead this team in touchdown catches. And one reason I say that is because you can tell when you watch them in practice, if they get into the red zone and they need to throw the ball to somebody to make a big play, look, there are a lot of options. Jim Ray DK, certainly one of them, Will Pauling as well. But it's that physicality and that ability to make 50-50 balls, 80-20 balls that makes you have so much confidence in Bryson. And he put it out there on the field last season at Oklahoma State. He had yeah. really good numbers, was the second leading receiver for them last season. So it's not like he's unproven. And I think he's going to have a really good year. But it is, it's not like C.J. Williams did anything to lose the job. And I think this is the best possible situation for Wisconsin and for Luke Fickle is you want to breed success through competition. And it wasn't a matter of someone losing the job in my mind. It was a matter of someone coming out there and taking advantage of it uh, and doing everything that he could. So it's a good situation for Wisconsin. It speaks to the talent level because Bryson, fantastic. CJ, as we know, was a top 10 wide receiver in, in the recruiting class two years ago. Both those guys are going to be playmakers this season for sure. They will be. I was asked about Bryson, like, could he have a season like Quintez? The, the guy wasn't comparing him to Quintez, but he was like, could he, could he have a season like Quintez? And I, I don't see that. And it's not because of Bryson Green. It's because of everybody else. I don't envision a guy dominating the targets and the catches and the yards and the touchdown and the touch and the, the yards like uh, Quintez did in 2019. Touchdowns, that's where I could see Bryson Green be the guy that that leads them and potentially i don't know by a lot but could be their leader in touchdowns this year because i think he is where where he does not have quintez's ability at least in my opinion to get over the top uh quintez kind of showed a different gear he was physical and 50 50 balls were not 50 50 balls when you threw it to him and when he went to the red zone you knew you could look in quintez's way and he was going to go up and get it because he could leap like Nobody, very few people in program history. He had that basketball background that he could go up and, and take advantage of his uh, his vertical leap. So 
I don't think he's got Bryson Green has all that, but I think in the red zone for sure he can be a weapon and a Quintez Cephas type weapon in the red zone. I'll say this. If Bryson is targeted 94 times and no one else on the team is targeted more than 50 times, as was the case with Quintez in, in 2019, then sure, he's going to get those numbers. But I don't see that happening given the the weapons that this team has this season. Yeah, I, I just, I, I don't either. The one position we haven't talked about, the tight end spot. Tate Murchie and it's Tucker Ashcraft on the two deep. We know the other two guys that are, we think are healthy, are JT Seagreaves and Cole Dokovich. And that's it. Is there a concern level with you at all with just having those numbers? Or do you feel good about what the tight end has been asked to do in Phil Longo's offense before? And and they've got the guys to do it. Well, I like how you say we think are healthy because you can never be too sure in that tight end room. I can remember some of the guys in past years joking, maybe only half joking that they thought their room was cursed. Maybe they had to get some, some spirits or some uh, have a seance in there. I'm not really sure. Uh, It seems to happen every year. I think that they're going to be okay. And part of that is we would expect Riley Nowakowski to come back at some point. Um, And his ability to return will impact, I assume, the reps that Tucker Ashcraft may get. Right now, as far as we know, Jack Pugh's still dealing with a personal situation. That's as much information as as we have. Um, And so don't know what his future holds. Hayden Rucci is clearly the guy. He is the most experienced but I think Ashcraft is in for a, a really impactful freshman season. He was getting first team reps within the second week of preseason practice. So it wasn't like just throw this guy out here. Cause there's absolutely nobody. Um, I mean, Riley Nowakowski was still available from what I remember. And Tucker Ashcraft was at least starting to get some reps. Now, yes, this is in large part because Clay Cundiff and Jack Eschenbach are no longer on the team, but I think Ashcraft has a skill set that can help right away. He's got that physicality to be a good blocker, but he can, he can pass catch. And I mentioned on the previous show, his high school coach told me they used him as a wide receiver in high school. So uh, it is, it's encouraging, but I think they're still proceed with caution a little bit with those tight ends in terms of what exactly are you going to get out of them? Because you know, Phil Longo wants to use them in the passing game. I think they will have success. It's just not proven success. Even Hayden Rucci, your most experienced guy right now, he has six career catches for 75 yards with a touchdown. That's it. And that touchdown was the last time we saw him. We came yes. to the bowl game against Oklahoma state. When you think about Tucker Ashcraft, and I know you've spoken to some people that are familiar with him, what stands out about his game to them that he's already ready to play. It sounds like the toughness, um, the ability to not make repetitive mistakes. It's the same things you hear that hold back freshmen typically, but he's able to move past that. And yes, some of this has to do with opportunity. I don't, I don't know how many freshmen are just given opportunities to be in the two deep. And maybe if they were, they would take advantage of it. It's hard to say, but I think those are are some of the things that have stood out. He's just he's a good ball player. He's smart and he's a playmaker. And we, I mean, we saw that in in the practices that were open to reporters that when he was in there, he was catching the ball. If you throw it in his general direction, at least to me, it seemed like he was going to come down with it, and that's a good thing. It definitely is. So there are a couple of ors on the depth chart: Skyler Bell or Vinny Anthony, Preston Zachman or Austin Brown. I feel like. The one that surprised me the most out of that is probably Vinny Anthony and Skyler Bell. Skyler Bell and Will Pauline, it felt like were the one-two easy, and it feels like Vinny Anthony has kind of pushed himself up there based on, I would assume, what he did in practices close to the media because there wasn't he, he was with the third group most of the time that we got to see him, except for the Saturday scrimmage. That's when 
Skylar Bell dropped out early and then he got some more time, but I assume it had his, his ascension had to have been something that came from the, the practices that were closed to, to the media. That's a guess on my part at this point. There was another practice where Will Pauling went down and that moved Bell up to the first team. And so Pauling ran with the twos. And in that practice, from what I remember, he caught a 19 yard touchdown pass up the seam from Braden Locke. So when he's been in there, he's been able to make plays. He's got speed. They used him a little bit last year, but again, much like we're talking about with the Bryson green, CJ Williams situation, I think this is more of people are pushing each other and that's a good thing. And I I mean, I I don't feel like Skylar Bell did anything to lose opportunities or lose reps. He made plays when he was in there too. I think it's more Vinny coming in, taking advantage. He's got that track speed. He won state titles in track in Kentucky, and that certainly helps. And that really, his style of play fits what Phil Longo's looking for as in your slot receiver. You get a speedy guy who can catch passes, who can create mismatches, and who is in the middle of the field and then makes people commit to making a decision. That That is extremely difficult to deal with. So I don't know if we're really going to see seven wide receivers in a game. It's even mind-blowing to put that into a sentence. If we see more than four. It'll be something different, but they feel very good about their top six and seven right now. Yeah. So the other, or, as I mentioned, was Austin Brown and Preston Zachman. And it felt like, you know, maybe Austin Brown was kind of just like thought to be another one of the starters, but Preston Zachman had a hell of a camp. And I think based on what he's able to do, because he was put into that dollar spot a couple of times throughout fall camp, we're going to see Preston Zachman and Austin Brown. I think the safety group is loaded. It's a really good top five. Obviously, we know the top three, Hunter Wohler, Kamoe Latu, Travion Blaylock, but Austin Brown and Preston Zachman are are right there next in line. I don't know how many reps each of those guys are going to get, but they definitely showed during preseason practice that that they're ready. And Zachman is an interesting story just because when he was in high school, he played everywhere. And he came in at Wisconsin as an inside linebacker, and they moved him not too long after to safety. I think that takes some time. It takes some time to go from high school to college and make that transition to the speed of the game, but then to change positions and learn that it doesn't happen right away, but you're right. He, they put him into the the dollar package that Hunter Wohler runs when Preston was with the second team occasionally, and they use a bunch of different guys. So he's very versatile, much like Hunter. He can play up in the box, but he can play in the secondary and contest balls against big wide receivers. And so I won't be surprised if we see him, in the game as well. It's a, it's a really good group of safeties that Wisconsin has. Any surprise at all that TJ Bowlers was not listed in the TD? It's not a huge surprise if you're only going to list four. If you've got five outside linebackers that could conceivably play, someone's going to be missing unless you you use that or designation. I, I was putting together a, a top uh, two deep before it was released in preparation of this, and mine was the same as as what this has, you knew it was going to be CJ Getz and Daryl Peterson with the top group when both those guys are on the field and Jeff Petrowski and Caden Johnson are listed as the twos. And the thing is Petrowski has the potential to play the position that bowlers would play in that dollar defense where you've got somebody who's on the defensive line. I mean, you, those guys are versatile because they can stand up, come off the edge, but they can put their hand in the dirt. And Petrowski was a defensive end at Michigan state two years ago. He was second on the team in sacks there, five and a half sacks. So he's a proven guy. It's a little bit different body type, but they brought Petrowski in for a reason. Having said that, I still think bowlers can be a contributor and an impact player because of his body type. I don't think the fact he's not in the two deep here is an indicator that you will not see him at all this season on defense. I'm intrigued to see how they hold up against the run. And it may not matter come on Saturday against Buffalo, but maybe so against some of the power run teams, 
having a 240 pound and a 243 pound linebacker as your third defensive end. I don't know about, are you, are you, is that something that you're interested to see? I'm intrigued about how they hold up against the run largely because of the front seven collectively, especially with the defensive line. And no Keanu but, Benton. Yes. You, you lose Keanu Benton, who, while the numbers weren't always indicative of how good he was, you knew he was there. You felt his presence. He was taking up double teams. He was doing so much. And this is a defense that has only given up a hundred plus yards in a season, I believe once in the last eight seasons. So it doesn't happen very often of, of late, but I do wonder whether there will be any kind of regression in the, in the run defense um, remains to be seen, but at least you've got some damn good inside linebackers who are going to be anchoring things in the middle. Keanu Benton, the highest graded rookie defensive tackle against the run in the preseason, according to pro football focus. So that's what you're missing uh, along the defensive line without having Keanu Benton in there. All right, so you mentioned the injuries. There are a number of guys on this too deep that are not in there because of injuries. Jake Renfro is one of them, obviously. Isaiah Mullins is another one of them. There's there's a few of them here, but we don't have that information because they are not giving out status reports. In the past, they gave out status reports. They'd give us a list. Didn't always include everybody that maybe wasn't going to play, but this year, it is going to be a situation where Everybody has to put out these status reports, but it's not until two hours before the game. It's this new thing from the Big Ten. No one's having a choice in this. But Phil, uh, but uh, Luke Fickle was asked about it yesterday, and he doesn't think it's that big a deal to have to put this this injury report out two hours before. He understands what's happening in the college game. He understands what happened at Iowa and Iowa State, some of the other places. I don't think it's, it's probably pretty naive of us to think that if it's happening at Iowa and Iowa State, that it's not happening in, in a lot of schools around the country. So they put this in place to try and, uh, I assume, eliminate inside information going outside and affecting gambling. But is it a big deal for Wisconsin, just based on what they've done in the past? I don't think it's a big deal from Wisconsin's standpoint. It certainly might be from other programs who feel like they're guarding state secrets. Uh, Jim Harbaugh. Right, which doesn't even provide a depth chart of any sort. But for this is a little inside baseball, but just so people know how Wisconsin has handled things in the past, and it has been based on what each program wants to do in terms of providing any injury information. But Wisconsin would give us a preliminary status report, they called it, on Monday. So the day when the head coach would have his press conference, really the start of game week. And then on Thursday, we would receive an updated status report, which would be the one that they were planning on going into the game with. And there were three categories. You were either questionable, you were out for that game, or you were out for the season. Uh, And in recent years, we would also get an email, maybe an hour, hour and a half before kickoff with that information. So they've kind of changed the way they've done things. But at least at Wisconsin, they have generally provided some type of information. And I think doing it two hours before the game is... at least it helps to level the playing field. Like one program shouldn't be giving information if another isn't. I don't think it's the biggest deal, but my hope is that it's just accurate. And I think we all just want accuracy and you alluded to this, but in seasons past, just because Wisconsin gave us a status report does not mean it would include all the players, which always made me question why they're giving one in the first place. Either do it and give us the names or don't do it. And let's just say why we're not doing it because there was one particular week that I remember when Alex Hornerbrook was not listed on that status report at all that week he 
had a concussion. He did not play. Uh, it just happened to come out midweek. Otherwise, it never would have shown up on an injury report. And it's like, come on, what, what are we doing here? Yes, right. Same thing happened with Troy Fumagalli one week. He got he had gotten hurt the previous week, but he never showed up on anything. And then come Saturday, was not on it. But it is what it is. I remember Paul Chris saying that he put that out there, said he would have to stop, wouldn't have to ask questions or uh, wouldn't be asked questions about injuries. It didn't help. People still ask questions about injuries. <laughs> and, and Luke Fickle's going to get those questions too. It's it's not about, you know, we don't may not have an injury or a stats report, but that doesn't mean we're not going to see a guy get injured in the game before and, and ask him, not ask him about it on a Monday. You're obviously going to ask him about it on Monday. That's just the way it is. So either way. Um, all right. A few more things here. Braylon Allen, we got a chance to speak with him on Monday. And I know you were asking this question to a number of the guys, but specifically to Braylon, it was, what questions do you have left about this offense? And he essentially said none. What he actually said was, how many points can we score? <laughs> it was an awesome answer. It was a, you know, it also led me to believe or led me to uh, follow up with, Okay, what what is the answer to that question? What do you think the answer is to that question? And he said, I don't know. It's going to be a situation where, you know, we score enough to to win every game more than the other team, score more than the other team and, and win every game. That's fine and all. That's all good and fine. Since he wouldn't give us an answer, how about we try and answer this question? How many points per game do you think Wisconsin's going to score this year? 35.7. <laughs> uh I, uh, I'm going with that number because if you look at Wisconsin's history, they've had two teams ever score more than 35 points a game. The aforementioned Scott Tolzien year in 2010 and the Russell Wilson year in 2011. Those two seasons were 40 plus. I, I just know that Phil Longo has had success when it comes to scoring points, at least everywhere he's been. And even at North Carolina, if you look at his four seasons at UNC, um, all four of those seasons would have ranked in the top 10 in Wisconsin school history for scoring offense. And three of those four would have been in the top five. So it's not, it's not apples to apples, but I think it's look, that's a power five program where he came in and helped to put up those numbers. And so I, I think I'm cautiously optimistic here that Wisconsin is going to end up somewhere in that 35 plus range and be the third highest scoring offense they've had. I will say I've been wrong before though, because I, I think I made a similar prediction back in 2018 when I felt so confident I think we all had reason to feel confident. They just won a freaking Orange Bowl. They won 13 games. Their Orange Bowl MVP quarterback was back. Everyone was back, and then they stunk. So it happens. Yeah, it didn't work. It didn't go out so great. It didn't go out, and uh, it, or it didn't go so well after that. That's 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 fair. But I was looking at this, and you mentioned the 2010-2011 offenses. They had a five-year stretch there that was pretty darn impressive of being able to score <laughs> score points. 2010, 41 and a half. 2011, 44.1. 2012, we don't need to talk about. 2013, 34.8. 2014, 34.6. And that 2014 team is probably the most impressive to me because they had very little passing game to go along with it. We already mentioned Tanner, Mad uh, Mor uh, Tanner Mordecai, Tanner McAvoy as the quarterback to start that year. And then Joel Stavi, after he got over his ips, yips, was the starter for the rest of the year. They didn't throw the ball overly well. Luckily for them, they had the best running back to ever play at Wisconsin in 
have the best season by running back ever at Wisconsin and Melvin Gordon. So I think it's realistic to be in that, that 35 point range, but it's kind of funny that the, the third spot and the eighth spot are separated by one point. 2013 was 34.8 and 2017 was 33.8. And there's a bunch of offenses in between there. What happens if they're not in the top 10, Jesse? The top 10 would be 32.2. That was the, the 10th highest is 1962. Is that's, that's when they scored that many points. I honestly believe that if Wisconsin doesn't rank in the top 10 in scoring um, in program history this season, that it should be considered a failure. <laughs> Maybe that <laughs> sounds harsh, but we've spent all off season talking about this new air raid offense, the tremendous amount of talent that it has Tanner Mordecai coming in being exactly what this team needed. And Phil Longo has had so much success that I would feel if I was a fan, I would feel disappointed if this program doesn't crack the top 10 in scoring offense. And I know that they're coming off three poor offensive seasons to put it mildly, but this is new personnel and a new offense. And so I just think based on Longo's past, they should have some level of success right away and should be in that top 10 this season. Didn't you also ask Luke Fickle what was considered a successful season? I did. I um, I know he's gotten this question a lot here in the last eight or nine months, but I also framed it around his first year at Cincinnati. They went four and eight that year. Don't know how you could call it a success. On the other hand, you had that year to help lay the foundation for the future of the program. Turned out pretty good for Cincinnati and for Fickle. Uh, so I said, you know, what do you consider to be a success? And he's given this answer in, in other settings, but what he said was to be in a position to play your best football at the end of the season. And if you do that, you get into November, you're going to have a chance to compete for championships, which has been the thing that fickle has said all along. So I know, I think the measure of success this season would be winning a big 10 West title and getting to a conference championship game. On the other hand, I'm not going to sit here and say it's an abject failure if they go nine and three and finish second in the West, largely because I think this is a long game here for Fickle and his staff. I mean, that would be an improvement over where they were last season, certainly, and something to build on for the future. But when you've got all this talent and when you've got the West in the last year of the West, the way that it is, most people would consider, I think, success to be getting to a conference championship game and seeing what can happen from there. And also the schedule, right? The schedule that they play and who comes here and who they don't face. And I think that probably plays a role in, in people's expectations as well. Certainly did in my expectations and, and what I predicted, even though the more I hear 11 and one, the, the more I hate it. But um, either way, one more thing, Tanner Mordecai also spoke on Monday and Spoke is a general word, like a, a a general idea of what he did. He's tired of answering questions. And it's not just your questions. I think it was everyone's questions. He's he's ready to go play some football. Yeah, I was trying to ask him the same question I was asking some of the other offensive guys. Uh, I didn't even finish my question. I said, uh, you know, do you have any questions? Or like, what's your biggest question? No, I don't have any. <laughs> well, about the offense, I mean, no, I don't I don't have any. We're We're ready to go. They're going to give us a good plan. We're going to go out and execute it. He spent five years answering questions, uh, an entire off season. He's ready to play some ball. I will give him a shout out though, for the Bushwood country club t-shirt that he wore 1980 shout out to, to Caddyshack and to Tanner Mordecai for bringing the heat with his wardrobe. I believe he also had a golf hat on as well. Like a hat from a 
country club. So he has said that he is one of the best golfers on the team, if not the best golfer on the team. I think there's some other guys who are up there. It might've been a Marty Stray mentioned at one point when we talked to Tanner more about some of the better golfers. Congratulations to Marty Stray, a guy, a, a six-year senior who stuck it out, stayed around, and uh, what Luke Fickle called a pillar in the locker room, a guy that they've been able to count on in this transition. He was named a captain along with Jim Ray DK and Mumajong Mehta and Tanner Mordecai. So really uh, special for him, uh, a walk-on from Sun Prairie, getting that that honor. And you could tell how people, how excited people were when he was named a captain. And they voted on it, so obviously uh, they felt that same way. So congratulations to him. And we'll get to see all the Badgers coming up here on Saturday. But before then, we have one more show. It is the first episode of Temple and High Alfred, live from Monk's Bar and Grill in Sun Prairie from 6 to 7 Thursday night. Looking forward to it. Can't wait to get out there. Stop by, eat some good food, drink some good drinks, watch some good football. I can't promise the good football thing. I can promise the good drinks and I can promise the good food. And uh, if you're not out there this week, we'll be out there the entire season. So really looking forward to that. Jesse, thank you very much. Thanks, Zach. Game week. Can't wait. It is. It is. All right. There he is. Jesse Temple from The Athletic. You've been listening to The Camp.